probably the biggest thing I learned about being an entrepreneur is really doing it as a social purpose. I always feel that my success has always been really kind of, I've come off of events that have happened in my life and things that I've wanted to change, whether it's about the world, whether it's about our lives, you name it. But that seemed to be my success potion that kind of got me to where I am today. Welcome to Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician with Dr. Anthony Orsini. Dr. Orsini is a practicing physician and president and CEO of the Orsini Web. As a frequent keynote speaker and author, Dr. Orsini has been training healthcare professionals and business leaders how to navigate through the most difficult dialogues. Each week, you will hear inspiring interviews with experts in their field who tell their story and provide practical advice on how to effectively communicate. Whether you are a doctor faced with giving a patient bad news, a business leader who wants to get the most out of his or her team members, or someone who just wants to learn to communicate better, this is the podcast for you. Welcome to another episode of Difficult Conversations, Lessons I Learned as an ICU Physician. This is Liz Porat christ Managing Director of the Orsini Way, and I will be your co-host on today's episode alongside with Dr. Orsini. Today, we have the pleasure of welcoming John Brandt to the show. John's career as a social purpose-driven entrepreneur has led to building and eventually selling four different organizations. The most recent sale is that of the Thrive Alliance Group. Thrive Alliance was formed to make mental wellness a part of the climate and culture in school districts across the country. These programs make schools stronger and transform the lives of its students. New Story, a leading provider of special education, therapeutic, and mental health services, purchased Thrive just this month, and we can't wait to hear all about it. It is interesting that this episode comes right on the heels of a recent show where we spoke to Corey Feist of the Dr. Lorna Breen Heroes Foundation, which focuses on supporting and improving the mental health of our healthcare providers. We may just post these episodes back to back because mental health seems to be one of the most important topics we've been discussing. John, welcome to the show. Hi, Liz. Dr. Arsini, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, Great to have you. Always great to see you, John. Yes, thank you. Thank you. So we like our guests to tell the audience a little bit about themselves before we get started. So why don't you give us an inside peek as to how you got here and what we like to refer to as the pinnacle of your career being on our show. Yes, this is the pinnacle. Thank you. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, my life really being as an outsider uh, in a lot of businesses and industries, being an entrepreneur, and I went through a couple business failures before success came about. And just like life, learned a lot of lessons, learned a lot of interesting things. Probably the biggest thing I learned about being an entrepreneur is really doing it as a social purpose. I always feel that my success has always been really kind of, I've come off of events that have happened in my life and things that I've wanted to change, whether it's about the world, whether it's about our lives, you name it. But that seemed to be my success potion that kind of got me to where I am today. So, and I really appreciate the stuff you guys do. So I'm so happy to be here. Let's work backwards because we mentioned Thrive Alliance. Could you tell us a little bit about how that came about? I'll kind of step a little bit further back. There was a group of 
schools called the Sage Day Schools that I became a investor and a partner in. And these were schools for kids with mental health issues that were emotional issues that were in going through K to 12 in schools. The Sage Day schools were this group of schools that we had created in New Jersey. There were five locations working with school districts and helping kids dealing with anxiety, depression. There were so many amazing stories that came out of the success of what we did with Sage. Thrive became kind of a part of what we did. And actually, Thrive was the next step of that. And that was actually putting therapeutic therapists and work and managing them in school districts. And we've done, we've had that in about 40 school districts throughout New Jersey. So Sage was the brick and mortar schools and Thrive became the deliverable that we did right in the school districts. Was it difficult to turn that baby over to somebody else? Yeah, it's always difficult to give something you've created, whether it's a piece of art or whether it's a piece of your life. Yes, for sure. You know, and I, Getting back Thrive, why Thrive existed and why I got involved in it is because of a mental health issue that my brother had. Fortunately, I lost a brother years ago to suicide. And this I'm became- so sorry, John. Thank you. But going back to the world, those seemed to be the things that motivated me to want to change and to be able to do what we did and respect and honor. I'm the business end of building Thrive and Sage, but my partners who were therapists- and the hundreds of therapists that worked underneath us were just amazing giving people and the stuff we've been able to do literally save lives. And, and that is incredible. I give myself a little credit just for <laughs> the concept of being able to build this out. But really, without those people, without the team, we would be nowhere. So, And John, how far reaching was Thrive? How many schools and how? Thrive was in 40 school districts in New Jersey. And then, of course, Sage, we had our five little brick and mortar schools. So we had about 70 therapists that worked underneath us in the Thrive program. And with Sage, we had about another 40. So a little over 100. So Liz and I have done a, a lot of stuff with mental health in the healthcare industry, but we have had a few guests talking about mental health in children, and we really stressed about how social media and mental health, and I think it's even harder for a kid to grow up today than many years ago. Just like to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, I think the awareness is there more now. So we know a lot more about mental health issues, but absolutely, social media just kind of is cherry on the cake when it comes to, you know, in the old days, even if we did deal with anxiety, depression, and being bullied and whatever, you at least you'd go home and you'd have some kind of solace being home and being able to watch television and be with your family. The connection of social media being with us 24-7 certainly has really kind of made that into a 24-7 problem and issue for kids and for adults. All of Easiest part of social media is just looking at social media and going, oh, people have these charmed lives. Look at all this great stuff all these people are doing. We know it's not true, but it, that's the appeal. And then you got the bullying and just the kids feeling left out. And it just, yeah, tenfold mental health problems. I've been in the mental health business about 15 years, and I'd say 
it's quadrupled over that period of time. Especially in children. That's why Thrive is so important. Yep. With children mostly. Yeah. Yeah. You see it in children. In, in When we were kids, bullying was, you know, I'm going to take you out, in the, especially with the boys, right? I'm going right. to take you out in the playground. I'm going to beat you up. And yeah. So you go home with a black eye. And right. Was and, it was over. It. <laughs> and it was over. And your mom gave you a hug and your dad got mad and whatever. And maybe your dad taught you how to fight. So next time you get a black eye. <laughs> but nowadays, like you said, it's 24 seven. The kids can't stay off of their phone anymore, even though the dad and mom might say, hey, just stay off your phone. They just can't do it. And so that's why I really respect what you've done with Thrive. And it's hopefully it'll be in, in more and more school districts. And it sounds like now that you've handed it over, it sounds like that's the goal, right? That's the goal. Yeah. The goal is to be able to put it, as you said, Liz, you, my baby, right? But giving our baby to someone who could nourish it and grow it. And you talked about news story in the beginning, the, the group that acquired us, they also acquired our SAGE schools three years prior. Yeah, they have the the process of being able to grow this across different states. We were kind of more New Jersey based and they're growing it everywhere. And that's really the goal. But yes, a much, much needed business that didn't exist maybe 10 years ago, didn't even exist going into schools and doing this. Well, I think if you think about it, all these kids are having such a high incidence of mental health struggles and then there's nobody in the school districts that is trained or prepared to walk them through or the teachers through how to help them. So I think it's so incredibly important because this isn't going away anytime soon. When we were all young, you didn't know you missed the party till you got to school on Monday. Now you miss the party while the party's going on. Right. And it's- You're literally watching what you missed. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) As you're you're watching videos. Yes. So true. But it's, yeah. And it even gets deeper. It gets to the point where it's not even your friends that are causing the anxiety. It's people living different lives that that appear to be living this great, amazing life. And why can't we, why can't I do this? So there's a lot that goes on with the kids and getting them away from that, understanding that, giving them tools to work with, to get themselves to know when they feel anxious or when they feel this or to when they see this going on, it's not exactly the way it appears. So I already see a reoccurring theme with you, John. So you had once, we're going to go back and talk about some of your other businesses. And I heard you tell a story about an experience you had with your beloved grandmother in a hospital that really kind of stuck with me. And it probably was early enough to start this trajectory of, I don't like what I see let me figure out how to make it better. If you could tell us a little bit about that story. Yeah, it's kind of weird. Like I've been this outsider, outsider in the healthcare industry as well. And visiting my grandmother in a hospital in South Florida in late 80s, I discovered she had this big black and blue mark on her arm and just asked the nurse, I said, I had an infection. It felt, I remember touching it. It felt warm, her arm. She was complaining she couldn't move her arm. And she was in her, well in her 80s. And the nurse said, ah, somebody called the phlebotomist. They drew her blood. They kind of missed the vein. She's fine. Don't worry about it. And I got in the elevator and another nurse kind of just out of nowhere came up to me. And as the elevator closed, she said, I'm so angry because that woman that drew your grandmother's blood last night, we didn't have anyone on the floor to draw. And we taught this woman, she worked in the cafeteria the night before, and we taught her how to draw blood. And I 
just couldn't believe what I was listening. First of all, I thought, what is a phlebotomist? So I went into this like research. Back then, we didn't have the internet, so I was in the library. I didn't remember my, yeah. those days. Yeah, remember that? And I did my research and looking into it and realized there were no really formalized training programs. There were some nurses were learning how to do it nursing school, but the majority of nurses were really, even at that time, becoming a lot more managerial, right? Stepping back from doing those things. So they had to get support staff. And the only way to get support staff was to train them, but they didn't have the time to train them. And that's when I, the bull by the horns on that one, and got together with a foreign doctor that I had met a couple of years prior and asked him about phlebotomy and how to draw blood. And he happened to be an expert at it. And him and I together in the early days created training programs around it and developed career education schools. I built two schools, one in New Jersey, one in Massachusetts that were training them. And then as we started doing that, we're getting a lot of accolades because hospitals were going, wow, we got these people trained now, we're coming. We learned to train others like EKG technicians and medical assistants. And then I kind of had another concept and idea was why not create an exam that they can take that can prove that they can actually do the job and they have the efficiency to be able to at least be able to draw blood the right way and use the right tubes and so forth. And from there, even though we created a third-party endorsement, it ended up becoming a large and is the largest in the world now allied certifying agency in the healthcare space called National Health Career Association. So I went from the schools to creating the certification process in that healthcare field. And we ended up working with medical billers and coders, but it all was based around patient care, right? It was, can we give people the right kind of patient care? Remember, as you guys know, back in the days and still, there were a number of diseases, even healthcare workers were catching from hepatitis to HIV and so forth, just because the process of drawing blood was convoluted, the least, and nobody did it the same way everywhere. What's the time span, John, from the time you had that idea to the time you made it a success and, and completed it? Well, it's probably like 89 when I made that visit to the hospital. I just, in all transparency, I just come off a of business failure and feeling depressed myself and going, what am I going to do next? And so it was kind of divine intervention that this nurse kind of came to me in the elevator. And so that was 89. And then around 92 started the schools. And then in around 96 started the certification process. I knew there was a bigger, and I ended up selling the schools and going out to schools all over the country and actually giving them curriculum and saying, we'd love for you guys to teach these programs. We'll give it to you for free. Just use us as your third-party endorsement for the final exam. And that's how we created the certification. So I sold the NHA in 2009. And the my two schools, one was sold in 1999, the other was 2006. So it's doing multiple things. It often does take, as Liz and I know, that you're in the healthcare industry. It, sometimes it takes somebody who's from the outside to come around and say, well, wait a second, have you thought about doing it this way? I think sometimes in healthcare where the doctors and the nurses and everyone else were so focused on patient care that it takes somebody from the outside. Well, that doesn't really make any sense. Like, why don't we do it this way? 
And that's why people like you really, it's important that we constantly ask, as Liz and I always say, constantly ask why. And we try to do that at the Orsini way when we teach patient experience and teach doctors and to enjoy themselves, to enjoy work. And it's a perfect team, I think, Liz and I, because I'm on the inside and Liz is from the outside. She's not in healthcare. She's taking it from the patient point of view. So I think it's really interesting that some guy who never went to nursing school or medical school ended up doing this phlebotomy thing <laughs> that probably you were like saying, that doesn't make any sense. A cafeteria worker's drawing blood. <laughs> yeah, it was kind of interesting. It was definitely a aha moment of going, this is an industry that's existed for forever in one way, shape, or form. And I was the outsider. But again, it is true. I mean, people could look at what I do and, and from the outside, I'm in the middle of the woods, right? I'm in the jungle working. And being able to look from a different point of view at something, I think is interesting. And I think in the beginning, I had a battle to get credibility. It took us a, a long time. We had a lot of, early on, we had hospitals go, what? well, I certify them. They're fine. And then when we started market, I went after were the organizations that were training them and saying, guys, utilize this, even if certification isn't important, because at the time, nobody really even knew about certification, even if it was important. If they took a test from a third party, rather than just the test you're giving them, we're offering this exam. Wouldn't that make them a little more valuable for even get hired in a job? Again, that was also motivation was to be able to help a lot of people be able to get to create careers for themselves. And we were able to do that as well. So, yeah. And I speak for everybody with terrible veins like me that I'm thanking you because that universal kind of method of which people go about being trained, it's so important. And I guess it would make you feel a lot better about your job if you always left feeling like you knew what to do and your methodology was good. Right. So, I think that's probably more helpful than you know, and I don't know anyone that hasn't had that kind of experience. So are there any other businesses that you've been part of that are so universal like that? Again, I looked at what I did with NHA as kind of a multi-pronged patient care. So really working with patients, making sure they're safe, making sure the healthcare worker is safe, and literally being able to help people get jobs that welfare work people that were going through some of these schools looking for careers as medical assistants or medical billers and coders. So that business was kind of a three-pronged approach. What I loved about the business too, because I had schools going on at the same time, we hired a majority of the people from our schools to work for us. So this was like this ecosystem that we had going on, which was exciting. And then obviously getting into behavioral health. So those were the two main ones for me. But I have some other things up my sleeve working on now. Hopefully it'll be revealed in the near future. Not in the healthcare field, but just really supporting people. Yeah. That doesn't surprise me at all. Did you have a mentor along the way that helped drive you? Or is it just your own inner entrepreneur that takes these dreams and puts them into action? I wouldn't say mentor, but I will point to things. Change my life. One was, I don't know if you know the book, but it's a book I've been reading every year for 30 years called The Road Less Traveled, which is M. Scott Peck. And there was something about that book that got me to look at my life in a different way. And really, I guess the easiest way to describe The Road Less Traveled, because I didn't know it until more recently, because I've become, I read a lot of stoic philosophy things and M. Scott Peck. The concept of road less travel was life is difficult, dealing with life's issues head on, not burying our head, not 
deviating or getting away. What I've probably learned, I could probably say my mentors have been my mistakes that I've made in my life. I was just talking about this the other day. I said, a successful business, I probably made a thousand really bad mistakes and maybe made three good ones. And that's what made the company go to the next level. So for me, it was learning that. I love my parents dearly. My dad was a guy who made a lot of mistakes in a lot of ways during those days. I was angry at him and saw that. There was a lot of teaching not to go down that same path and not doing the same thing. I was going to ask, if is there a methodology when you come up with these amazing ideas? And I'm sure a lot of people come to you with a lot of amazing ideas. Is there a methodology that you use to kind of sort through them? Yeah. Well, I'm a partner in a venture capital fund right now. And we see a lot of companies that come and pitch us on their ideas. If there's not a social purpose to it or a drive for them, and again, it doesn't have to be a social purpose that they want to change the world. Even if there's a social purpose of what you want to do with your employees, you want to make, you want to help them grow. Those are the type of things that I get excited over. Don't get excited in investing in businesses that don't really have some type of mission. So that's kind of the way I roll. I completely <laughs> understand that because when I left fashion to go work with the Orsini way, my husband says, wait, your degree, your whole background, your 20 years of your career has all been fashion. Why are we doing this? And that was my answer. We're changing the world. Of course, that's why he's like, okay, go change the world. (laughs) You guys are, and what you're doing is amazing, by the way. Thank you. Totally respect all the stuff that you guys do. That's Thank you. You know, it's interesting, John, that you were talking about all your failures, because we've certainly had many in ours. And the old joke is doctors make the worst businessmen. Right? They don't have any. <laughs> this is why they needed you to come up with the obvious idea of, of crediting phlebotomists. But yeah, find the successful pattern, I guess, or combination of a business person and a healthcare person is what really works. Like you had said, you had happened to have a doctor friend who knew a lot about this. But I think it's a very fine balance between that healthcare needs the business people. And one of the issues we're having right now in healthcare is that sometimes the business people forget about the healthcare part of it and the healthcare people forget about the business part of it. And we're having a big issue right now where doctors are having issues with burnout and patients aren't happy with their experience because the business side of it, which is so important, has just overshadowed the healthcare side. And then if the healthcare side doesn't ask for the business help, it's like a marriage. It's give and take. And if that marriage is more giving on one side, it fails. Right. So we struggle with the business part too. And, but, you know, we have the social way, which I think is the social, we really want to help. Liz and I have a, a message that we want to scream from the mountaintop, we always say. And so that's the basis. And I think that's what keeps us going. Absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, that feeling, <laughs> getting on the mountaintop and going, Why is anyone listening? listening to me? Yeah, I mean, even when we were dealing with schools, school districts, they go, oh, we don't have the funds to bring you guys in or whatever. And I'm like, you can't afford not to have us there. It's not about- We've had that pounds. conversation before. Like, yeah. We have yeah, that conversation sure, a lot. Sure. I'm preaching to the choir here. It does get to that point. And we know, first of all, we know that these school districts can find the funding. They do it. The ones that could figure it out, do it. But it's just, you know, it's decisions that they make that kind of make me uh, wonder sometimes, but always going to fight the good fight. 
We always say it's only going to take one lawsuit for you to figure out how to come up with that funding to train that doctor on how to have a difficult conversation. Yes. And speaking of difficult conversations, uh, we ask every guest this question, and I did remember to remind you or to let you know what that prompt would be. So is there a specific difficult conversation that you feel you've learned to overcome or one that really kind of tweaks you that you'd rather do anything than have? Delivering bad news is probably one of the worst conversations I have, and I'm sure Dr. Rossini go through that. that. I got a guy. (laughs) We got a guy. You got a guy. But it's, again, kind of goes back to dealing with issues and breaking through. Those things are, were always uncomfortable for me, whether it was, was confronting someone with something or conflicts. Oh, boy, uh, relationship things, giving feedback and criticism. There's a lot of those, but you know, probably delivering a bad news, whether it was letting an employee go. I used to dread that they weren't doing what they were set out to do. It was their reason why they were going to be let go. But I never liked to do that. And it did change a lot when it came to that because I was able to overcome that by talking about, hey, you know what? Relationships do end. It's both parties. It's not always this employee did a horrible job and they're, you know, we have to accept that we didn't connect some way. And so for me, that difficult conversation became easier because I learned that I have a stake in this failure. If this person didn't do well in the company, I did something wrong not to help them grow. So by taking responsibility for me was a way I was able to get through those difficult conversations and delivering bad news. That's very insightful, John. I, I equate it to the, I think you are a football fan, but I equate it to the, the coach and quarterback partnership. There are quarterbacks that are total failures with one team and then go to a different team with a different coach and all of a sudden are thriving. I think that's very insightful. The same thing happens in business and we talk about that. It's not that you're not worth it as an employee. It's not that you're not good or you're a total failure. It's just that this coach quarterback thing is just for some reason, and I take some culpability for that. For some reason, it's just not working. And I think that's a great way to put that. That's that's really good. I, I just had a conversation with a friend of mine who's pretty high up on a bank yesterday. And we were talking about difficult conversations. And I mentioned the Harvard Review, business review, that study that said, 73% of business executives do not have anxiety about giving difficult conversations, and 54% of them deal with toxic situations by not dealing with them at all. And I said that to him, and he goes, that's me, and he's a pretty high executive, and he said, this is an issue. So it's everybody. Nobody wants to give bad news, but sometimes you have no choice. Right, right. And if again, if you, like you said, dive into it, go into it, even though it's not comfortable but you dive into it. And it's not just to make that person feel better. I think it, the reason I, if I was letting someone go, I really felt like I didn't do my job to make sure that person was successful. Or, or maybe I didn't even do my job in hiring the right person, which put them in a bad position. So, With a different offensive scheme and a different coach, absolutely. you might thrive. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. We give a lot of sports analogies. We do. Hey, <laughs> I'm a former uh, fullback, so I know the deal. Yeah. Defensive back. You couldn't tell by looking at me that I used to be fast, but I I used to be. John, because you've been involved in so many successful companies and even in, in some companies maybe that didn't turn out to be as successful as you liked, what advice would you have for someone who feels like they have a great idea, but doesn't have the confidence to take it to the next level? I think that someone really has, again, going back to the concept of an idea 
And do they want to be entrepreneurial or is this something they're doing within the company? They have to be able to sit down with someone, discuss it and find a mentor, find someone that could be a benefit to them to talk to. I'm always open to talk to to young entrepreneurs or I even talk to people who are in their 50s and 60s who are starting businesses now. So, you know, recommendation is if you feel you got a great idea, let it out. Some people feel like they got to hide it and they got to sign an NDA and all these other things and everything's so secretive, but talk about it a little bit, get yourself understanding what you want to offer and put together a small business plan, even if it's a one pager to let somebody look at it and help direct them. I think, again, entrepreneurs are, I always say they're not born, they're made. I learned a lot starting my own business and failing. I always joke and say nobody would hire me. That's the reason I'm an entrepreneur. I was was not the, didn't finish college. I wasn't the greatest student. I had an inner drive though. I was on the football field. I was an overachiever as well. I was not the fastest guy in the team, but I pushed hard. And I think, you know, see that within yourself, a young person that's looking to be an entrepreneur, they see that in themselves that, hey, I know I don't have the money. I know I don't have all this, but I really want to create something. That's when you got to get out there and start talking to people. And there's a lot of people out there from angel investors to venture capital people to people like myself who I just love talking about starting businesses and helping them try to figure it out. That's awesome. I know you kind of hinted that there's some new businesses on the horizon. Any more detail you can give us about that? Oh, right. You got it out of me. Well, yeah. (laughs) She's working with a former employee of mine. Actually worked for me 15 years ago. And we're putting together an entrepreneurial programs, education programs for people that want to become entrepreneurs. And a lot of it's from Stoic Wisdom. It's like The Road Less Traveled. The book, The Road Less Traveled, has been my Bible. But it's really a psychology book. It was by a psychiatrist. It had nothing to do with business. But I took that as my business book. So it's going to be a lot of philosophy, a lot of some hard-nosed discussions about dealing with issues and problems and getting through it. Don't be afraid to get up there and get in front of people and pitch your business. So we're putting the pieces together. We're actually starting with podcasts. And so we're kind of excited where that's going and the direction it's starting to take, but still in the infancy stage. Can't wait to hear more. John, this has been amazing. And we're going to put your contact information. I'm sure there's a bunch of entrepreneurs out there, but I really just love the way it's not just making a business, it's making a difference. And you're able to put those two things together. That's what we're all about. So we really relate to you. I think that's why Liz and, and I call you a friend. And we're just so happy that you took the time out of your schedule to talk with us and to our audience. So thank you so much. Thank you guys. And keep doing what you guys are doing. It's amazing. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please go ahead and hit subscribe and go down. And we have almost a hundred podcasts now for you to go and download. If you'd like to get in touch with me or Liz, you can reach us at theorsiniway.com and we will put all of John's contact information in the show notes. So in case you're driving, uh, you don't need to stop. So thank you, John. Appreciate everything. And thank you, everyone, for joining us. Thanks, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, please hit the subscribe button and leave a comment and review. To contact Dr. Orsini and his team or to suggest guests for future podcasts, visit us at theorsiniway.com. The comments and opinions of the interviewer and guests on this podcast are their own. 
and do not necessarily reflect the opinions and beliefs of their present and past employers or institutions.